Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yeah. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Up until that time, I think I was doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing, what I was born to do, and not really appreciating the moment. So I I tell young people all the time, as much fun as you're having, you know, remember this is a privilege to get to do what you do. I think there are times when we're such a competitive industry, we forget that. Today's show is brought to you by Roy's Umbrella. If you are looking to get a home loan, maybe a refi, just go to roysumbrella.com. He's awesome. I know I've used him for a number of years. No tricks, no gimmicks, no hidden charges at the end. Again, for all of your home loan needs, just go to roysumbrella.com. That's roysumbrella.com. My guest on the show today is currently with Fox Sports. He's had an amazing amazing career. He's been with Raycom, CBS Sports. He was back at ESPN, Sirius XM. He's done NCAA football and basketball, the NBA, the NFL. He's pretty much done it all. It is an absolute pleasure to welcome to the show, Tim Brando. Tim, great to have you on. How are you? Thank you, Grant. I'm good. You know, as I say, in these times, it's like the NCAA tournament every day. Survive and advance. <laughs> that's, that's where yeah. we are. You well, know? <laughs> you know what? Um, I, 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 we're laughing and we've lost a, a lot of people. And we, you know, we don't mean to uh, be raining on anyone's parade and being insensitive. But you're right. Survive and advance. That is, you know, you, you, you gave me a good laugh. That's a great way to start off this show. Hey, if you don't mind, I would love to go back to your childhood and growing up. Around what age was it where you even thought maybe broadcasting would be something that you wanted to do or it really struck you as, uh, wow, this is fascinating? Grant, I don't remember not knowing that I was, I don't believe I ever thought I would do anything but this from, I think I was born to do this. I, I clearly had defining moments about sports, about wanting to be, uh, you know, the next Kurt Gowdy or the next Keith Jackson or the next Dick Inberley, you know, n- name your, your, your incredible announcer from the generations before us that, that, uh, grabbed me and, uh, and, and tilted me in that direction. But my father put a couple of television stations on the air in the fifties, the first station, the CBS affiliate here in my hometown. And then the ABC affiliate took his shows when there was an ownership squabble over the original television station, which he represented back in those days, uh, World War II generation guys that were entertainers and um, 
and broadcast pioneers sort of had to do it all. And, and my dad did. He had three live television shows before the days of videotape in the 60s. And so, you know, I'm four years old in 1960, and uh, I'm going up to the television station to watch my dad uh, do a Saturday kiddie show, Tops for Toys. Or I'm watching him do the Hub Brando show with his own floor show band on Sundays. Because network television wasn't, at that time, supplying local TV with the, the kind of programming they, they do now. And they and he also had a Search for Talent show, which was sort of a local version of the Ted Mack Amateur Hour or Star Search with Ed McMahon. And he would take the talent from Hub Brando's Search for Talent and put them with his band, and then they would tour SAC air bases around the country. And I was part of the show. My older sister was part of the show. She could dance in pantomime. I was a drummer and a singer. And I was put out front on stage on local television shows at, at the local stations from the time I was five years old. Wow. And so, you know, when you grow up in that environment and at your house, you wake up in the morning, you see your dad shaving and you can smell the old spice, you know, down the hall that he was slapping on his cheeks as he prepared to put uh, his game face on, so to speak, to be on TV that day. You just idolize that. And uh, I wanted to be first. I wanted to be like him. You know, what I would do on TV, God only knows at that time. But along about the time live sports television connected with me as a six or seven year old in the early 60s, I knew that this was the thing I wanted to do. To me, what my dad was doing was cool. But what people like Kurt Gowdy and Jim Simpson and, and Jack Buck and Ray Scott were doing, to me, was even cooler than what my dad was doing. So I drifted in that direction. And by the time I was, gosh, eight or nine years old, I was asking for whatever I could find to record. You know, some, my dad could get a hold of some old reel-to-reels. And, and by the time cassette recorders were being made, I was all over. I was probably 10 years old, 66, I think, somewhere around there when cassette recorders were just coming out mm-hmm. and that was those those things were like gold <laughs> guys that right. were dreaming of being sportscasters yes. because you could take your cassette recorder go into your back room I, I had a black and white small television set in my room and i would people say turn the sound down i actually kind of kept the sound up just a little so i could listen back to it and measure my call with what i could sort of hear in the background was being done on television it was just a thrill to be doing that, and I'd play it over and over again, listen back to it. My dad was very well aware at that time of you know, the direction I was going to go in. And so years later, dad drifted away from local television. His network programming came in. He had his own advertising agency, and that was moving along. He decided to get out of the business and start into the hotel-motel acquisition business, and he moved out west eventually to do some screenplay writing. But he had a chance to get a hotel in nearby Monroe, about 100 miles away from Shreveport, where I grew up. My mom and dad had separated when I was 11. But I maintained a great relationship with him during his travels. And it was the right thing at that particular time for for him to do. But he invested in this hotel in Monroe, I think solely so he could get closer to his family that he had left behind. And especially me, because he knew of my love of broadcasting. Anyway, he he got back, and I remember he gave me a call, and he said the local AM radio station in Monroe was owned by a guy that was a friend of his, and they were in need of a play-by-play guy for high school football. And 
he knew my dad could do it because my dad had been a sports writer when he came back from World War II before, you know, television began. And and dad had done some play-by-play and part of his past. He did everything in those days, as I said. And he said, Hub, could my dad's name was Hub Brando. He said, Hub, could you do, because we just lost our guy. I know you're busy and maybe you can only do it for a year, but Neville High School football on Friday nights is a really big deal. And it was a legendary program in the state of Louisiana. And my dad immediately thought of me and he, something clicked and he said, well, you know what? I'd love to do it as long as you let me pick my second banana, my color guy. Having no idea his color guy would be his 14-year-old son. (laughs) That's great. In Shreveport. So I would get on and my father came back to Shreveport to visit with my principal at my middle school, a junior high, we called it back then, and asked permission for me to get out of school on Fridays at noon. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, so I could be driven to the Continental Trailways bus station and take a ride from Shreveport to Monroe. And my mom would, God bless my mom, she's still with us, 93 years old. She would pick me up from school. And imagine, principals at high schools, uh, at middle schools would never do this now, but they did back then. It was neighborhood schools in those days. I would take a Trailways bus to Monroe, meet my father at the bus station, and we would go to Neville High School's Tiger Stadium. Charlie Brown was the uh, legendary Hall of Fame high school coach there. And I would do the interview with him. And then we would do the games either at Neville or we would drive to the small towns in northeast Louisiana Hmm. where they were in the same district of. And and dad would call the first half and I would I would get, you know, comfortable with the environment. And then in the second half, he would pass the play by play duties on to me. And so that's how I started. So next year, 2021 will mark the 50th anniversary of my first ever play-by-play broadcasting that I did with my dad That's when I was That's when great. I was 14 in 1971. Wow. wow. So I can't imagine, I know that was a long response, but I can't imagine a date. I never had a job other than throwing the, the paper. And I never, and I guess that was in journalism, right? It was sold sure. a paper. <laughs> right, right. I, I never had a job that was not a broadcasting yeah. job. That's so awesome. You and I are the same generation. I grew up listening to Marv Albert, and if it weren't for that, I don't think I would have ever gotten into this field. I follow yeah. you on social media. I've listened to so many interviews you've done in the past. You always mention Kurt Gowdy. What influence did he have on your career? Oh, it was just amazing. And I, you know, I, I, I make no bones about the fact that I want to help young broadcasters and as much as I possibly can. And sometimes it's difficult. You know, a lot of times young people that really want to do what what we do don't have the chops to do it. And it can be a hard thing to sometimes tell someone, well, if you want to be involved in sports, you can be, but I think you probably need to look at uh, directing or producing, or there are other ways to be stimulated in live sports and not necessarily be on the air. But the ones that are really good, and you can see that they've got desires to be top-level broadcasters, man, I, I, I can't wait to help those guys or women. Many of the young women out there I've mentored, and the reason I think for that is because they haven't had very many women to look up to, because our business was such a you know, a male driven industry that's obviously has begun to change in the last 10 to 15 years, but it's true. They just didn't have the Kurt Gowdy. You know, who was the female Kurt Gowdy of our generation? There was no, you know, so I think legacy in our business is about helping others. And Kurt was always thinking of that. And, and Grant, at the time that I met him, 
on the Saturday or the Friday before the Final Four in 1982. I was doing a radio talk show nightly on WGSO in New Orleans on Canal Street. And uh, because of the prior job I'd had in Baton Rouge, the owner of that station was part of an ownership group, individual radio station owners. I think Kurt probably had seven or so radio stations scattered around the country, Mm. some in Boston, some in West Palm Beach, down in Florida. And these guys would meet and they would share stories and information about people they had and whatnot. So he knew about me. But he didn't know that PR people for ABC and American Sportsman had scheduled him on my show. He came to be on and I immediately told him about my old station owner. And he, he recognized, he says, I've heard your take yet. You know, he knew all about it. Mm. After we did an hour's worth of radio talking about the final four the next day that he was going to work with the legendary K. Wood Ledford of Kentucky. They were going to do the radio on Westwood One together. He said, why don't you come over to the Hyatt? and have breakfast with me tomorrow. I'd really love to, to do that. And I was like, are, are you kidding? I had actually named my little brother, who since passed away, Kurt Brando. He was a great journalist, only 52, died uh, in Hong Kong last year. I named him. Old Catholic family. We had an oh, by the way, little brother come, 11 years my junior. I named him Kurt. If that, my, my mom and dad said, if it's a boy, I got to name the baby. If it's a girl, my older sister was going to name the baby. So as a little boy, I named him Kurt, and I told him this story, and Gowdy looked at me like, you're such, you're some con man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, Kurt, if I, I, would you mind if I call, I want to call my little brother. Now, you got to remember, I was 20, 26 years old, and I, I called, my brother is maybe 14 at the time, not quite 15. I called him, I got him on the phone with Kurt. Wow. Gowdy. And Gowdy, as he's talking to my brother, I could see he's like sort of tearing up, you know? That's great. <laughs> I had made a friend for life. That's great. Okay? And he said to me, you're coming to have breakfast. So we did a three-hour breakfast on Saturday of the Final Four. Hmm. And uh, he talked to me about everything. He was a visionary. Uh, Grant, I was, I was, like all young broadcasters then, thought I needed to get to a bigger market. And I needed to be on TV. And I just gotten the LSU Tiger Vision play-by-play job that year. And he said, well, wait a minute, kid. You're doing football. You're doing, you're in a position to do maybe some NFL, some, uh, you do, you're covering the Saints. He says, you need to stay where you are and forget this local stuff. He said, this cable deal is going to be big. It's going to be huge. And he says, if you can cobble together enough money to take care of your family and just have a chance to work on your craft because play-by-play is what you really want to do. If you go to a local station in a bigger market, they're not going to let you do that. Mm-hmm. You'll never get to, to work on and get the reps you need. So I followed his lead, and three years later, you know, well, actually a year or two later, I'm doing syndicated stuff in virtually every conference in America. And by 85, I'm doing a game with Vitale on ESPN, and, and the rest is history. And we maintained a relationship and talked. He was going to the Final Four every year for the NABC, hosting a lot of the same events that I host now for their, you know, their National Association of Basketball Coaches Convention. He was he was a Hall of Fame player at Wyoming. You know, he was just a, an incredible basketball talent himself. Man's in the Hall of Fame as a player. So we maintained a relationship all the way through that grant. That other than my dad, no one as a broadcaster had more influence on me. Than Mr. Gowdy and his son, Kurt Jr., who now runs SNY in New York, 
uh, produced me on the Little League World Series in 1994, which was my last year at ESPN. And that was a thrill, you know, because Kurt Jr. knew my story too. And we, we've maintained a relationship over it as well. And, you know, I get misty eyed when I talk about him, you know, I, I really do. So if any time I can be to someone else, what Kurt was to me, you know, then I've had a really good day and a good life. You've had an amazing career. You talk about your days at ESPN. You were in New York every weekend hosting, you know, the CBS college football and basketball studio shows. Mm -hmm. When you look back to this point at your career, what's been the most enjoyable part of it? Is there one where you go, wow, man, that's when things were just great and I missed that? Or or have you just really enjoyed the entire ride? Oh, the ride, all of it. You know, the journey is the best part. I use that as a hashtag a lot when I'm talking to people on on social media. And I think that that's something to be appreciated. My greatest regret is I was on such a fast track and so many things happened so quickly during that period in the eighties, I started doing LSU Tiger Vision. Then I I had some tape to send out and then people like Don McGuire at Raycom and Jimmy Rayburn at Jefferson pilot and the Schwing brothers at Mislu. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, the the uh, Lenny Klompas at Metro Sports. I mean, I can remember all these names from syndicators that were reaching out to have me do games for them. And then shortly thereafter, I'd sent tapes into to ESPN uh, uh, for about a year during that period. Never heard back from them. And Ellen Beckwith and Scotty Connell was running ESPN at that time. They reached out for me to do a game on January 5th and 85, and it was replacing Jim Simpson to be with Dick Vitale. and Man, that went really well. And Dick, to his credit, was uh, a champion for me. And uh, he was about six years into his career at that time. And so what he said mattered. And I started getting more work. And lo and behold, um, you know, a year and a half later, I'm moving in late 1986 to Connecticut. And my life journey from that point forward, it's 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 been at times higher highs and some lower lows. I, I think uh, my decision to move from Connecticut back to Louisiana, even though I got a new contract at ESPN. Grant, that was really the reason people always ask me, why did you leave ESPN? And the reason was my wife was unhappy living in Connecticut. Southern girl, born and raised in Shreveport, where I live. And I remembered that conversation I had with Gowdy back in 82. He he said to me, you know, you, the more I talk to you, you sound like the guy that doesn't just want a career. You want it, you want it all. <laughs> I mean, you want right. a family. right. You want to marry once, you want to have a bunch of kids and, and all that. And I said, yes, sir, I do. And he said, and, and he was like, well, just do what she, where she wants to live is where you live. You know, he was yep. quick to point that out. I really did feel the period that I spent in Connecticut was a great career move, but I wasn't happy because she wasn't happy when I got home. You know, when I was leaving town to go do some basketball play by play, in those days, if you were hired to do Sports Center and you were a studio guy, You never got to do play-by-play. Well, Steve Bornstein, who hired me to move to Connecticut after Scott, after the sell of ESPN from Getty Oil was made to Cap Cities, which was the the last owner before Disney bought in, when that happened, there was a change in management. And I had no idea that Steve Bornstein was a fan of mine, but he was. And his his vision for me was to do college game day with Dino Cook. And we started that in 87. Lee Corso, I did his audition tape. And he was our third wheel. And granted, it was wonderful. But when football and basketball season ended, they had me doing Sports Center at 2.30 in the morning. Hmm. And I'm not, I, I didn't think I was getting that much out of that. And so I 
I wanted to stay, and eventually, kicking and screaming, they allowed me to stay at the company. But I wanted to move home, and I did. And I was able to build a, you know, our dream home that we're still in here in my hometown. And that was a cool thing for me to do. But from a career standpoint, it was a little costly in the sense that maybe my value to them wasn't as great as it as it previously was. And by 1994, I knew I needed to get another gig because I could see that my my events and my my profile was beginning to spiral the wrong direction. And Turner came along and I started doing the NBA and Major League Baseball with the Hawks and Braves. And I did the NBA playoffs for TNT and TBS. Don McGuire, who had been at Raycom, had taken over at Turner and then later Mike Pearl, both fans of my work. So I did that for two and a half years. Plus, I was doing SEC play-by-play and ACC play-by-play in football and basketball while I was doing MLB and NFL. It was just crazy. My schedule was amazingly difficult, but I didn't care. I was, you know, I was doing everything I wanted to do. But I was going fast, really fast. And I think when you're going fast, you sometimes forget to smell the roses. Mm-hmm. And when that opportunity came to go to CBS to do the NCAA tournament for the first time in 96, that led to an 18-year marriage at CBS, which was, I think, a real breakthrough to take me to a Tiffany network where more people, not just sportsaholics, but people around the country would more recognize you. And I'm forever grateful to the period I spent doing Major League Baseball and the Hawks and and the NBA because it exposed me during the Olympics in 96. It exposed me to a lot of television executives at the network level. And that included people like Sean McManus and and Tony Petiti and uh, Terry Ewart, all of whom played a great role in me getting to CBS. And all those stops along the way, I think, contributed to my ascension in the business and to ascend to that point through the many changes you make you can still balance your personal life with your career life but it's not necessarily always going to be smooth sailing you know you're going to reach career forks in the road and i had one uh, you know seven years ago when i abruptly left cbs which really had to, a lot to do with burning candles at both ends really trying to do a daily radio show that was being televised on their cable network and and balancing that with play-by-play. And ultimately, I think even though at the time I was like, what am I going to do? It all worked out because Fox was interested and this is the best place I've ever worked. So I've been a blessed man. And I think probably since I've gotten to Fox, Grant, it's taken that long Hmm. for me to be comfortable with what I'm doing because all I'm doing is what I always set out to do which is play-by-play, football, basketball, and a lot of it. And then I get my reprieve, and I take about four months off to recharge my battery and be with my family, be with my kids, with my grandkids and my wife. I, I think that that sense of, of retrospect, the ability to kind of appreciate what happened, only started in the last seven or eight years, you know, as I was approaching 60. Uh, up until that time, I think I was doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing, what I was born to do, and not really appreciating the moment. So I, I tell young people all the time, as much fun as you're having, you know, remember this is a privilege to get to do what you do. I think there are times when we're, 
such a competitive industry, we forget that. Tim, the NCAA basketball tournament, they're going to try to get it going in uh, Indianapolis. Obviously, we're in different times. There's going to be an unequal number of games. I saw the video you put out on social media. I thought you were spot on. I'm looking at some of the the oddities in college basketball this year. I'm looking at some of the losses Kansas has had. I'm just like, wow, Duke. And then I I watched Kentucky, Alabama the other night. I don't ever recall a Kentucky team looking as bad as they did. Just the turnovers, the the, just the mental mistakes. Uh, Boy, a down year for Kentucky, huh? How surprised are you by that? Well, it's a one-off year in a lot of ways, Grant. I mean, it really is. Uh, I I thought it was that way in football, too, frankly. I I don't know that fans can completely appreciate how challenging it's been during the COVID era for coaches to coach, players to play, what they've gone through. You know, in in football, we'd be having a Zoom meeting with the coaches, Spencer and I, on a Friday afternoon, and they would be telling us, well, we're just hoping that last, you know, COVID report we get this afternoon is is good because wow. if it's not, we're going to be down, you know, three linebackers. And then all of a sudden, we, in some cases, we might be in the middle of the Zoom and the sports information director would come in with the hit list and it would be, okay, well, guess we're going to have to change this game plan. You know, that kind of thing was going on all season long during football. Now, basketball is a different animal in the sense you don't have as many players to protect from COVID. But it also is a game of chemistry. I think much more so than college football. You know, college football, the, the, the two words that mean chemistry are complementary football, okay? Offense and defense playing together as one, understanding what the strengths and weaknesses of their teams are. But in basketball, it's passing, it's movement, it's knowing where your teammates are. And, you know, if you can't practice for 10 to 14 days, or in some cases 27 days, as that's happened to – I think Tom Izzo's playing his first game this week after I, the last game he played or coached was January 8th, which was my first game to call after I went through COVID myself. And it's been that long since they've played. It's hard to maintain that kind of chemistry that we're talking about. And I think that for teams that have gone the direction of one and done in their recruiting and in their program building, which Cal obviously invented the wheel for that, it's really tough because holding on to not just the the kid physically, but the kid mentally, you know, a lot of those young men that are playing at Kentucky and at Duke, they're not just thinking about dealing with COVID. They're dealing about, okay, I got to get out of here because I've got a career in the NBA. Correct. (laughs) You know, you're spot on. Very difficult. That's a very difficult thing for any coach to deal with, but especially Calipari and Krzyzewski, the teams that are doing well right now, by example, Wisconsin, the, the Wisconsin basketball program, if you were to take a look at the collective age, uh, collaborate all the players and look at their, their resumes, okay, they are older as a basketball team than the Chicago Bulls. Wow. Think about that. That's unbelievable. They're older. That's, yep. a, that's, a, that's a true fact. Yeah, that's now, incredible. teams like that and teams like Villanova, you know, I'm going to see Jay's team on Saturday against Seton Hall. And, you know, Jay's done what he's done by getting old and staying old. And his guys that go into the NBA, for the most part, not all, but for the most part, are two, three-year guys, okay? And his team has a lot of four-year guys, a lot of five-year guys. And that really helps. They they played uh, Seton Hall 11 days ago and had had 27 days off and yet looked pretty good. So I think that those teams that have, a lot of veteran players and programs that have been built that way through the years. Creighton is another example. 
you know, in the Big East that's that 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 is that way. A little bit like Wisconsin and a little bit like Villanova. So I think that's what we're witnessing today in college basketball. So some blue bloods who have always gotten the five star recruits, you know, be careful what you wish for, you know, when you're trying to deal with COVID. Final thing for you. You and I have talked about what it was like with you and Spencer broadcasting that football game from Oklahoma State on homecoming with the horrific accident in the homecoming parade. And you have had to deal with some very uh, difficult circumstances, getting into a broadcast booth, doing a game because of what was going on. What's When you look back at your career, was there one more than other that was the hardest broadcast to do because of what was going on outside the stadium or in our country or a tragedy or, you know, what would be number right. one on your list? Well, uh, it's a tie, really. <laughs> because you, you do this long enough, Grant, and, and I think something else it speaks to is one of the reasons why, you know, and you as a broadcaster can appreciate this, what we're dealing with in our industry now with both the economic contracting of the, of, of the business and COVID has caused for a lot of broadcasts, probably 70%, maybe more, of the basketball that you've seen this year being done remotely mm-hmm. and, and not at the actual game site. That's not what live broadcast sports television was supposed to be. Now, I understand why it's taking place, and for the most part, with the technology we have, it's pretty remarkable how good it's looked, okay? But I would also tell anyone that says, oh, well, it looks fine to me, then if you're saying that, and you compare that with the way the game is supposed to be televised, you're not watching closely enough. <laughs> That's correct. Okay? Being there and being in the environment is what the, the business is all about. It's, it's what I dreamed of doing. And if you're not there, the things that you can't see and don't understand, can't comprehend, are out of your control. Why maybe a melee begins, you know, a fight at the end of a college football game. That happened in one of the bowl games this year. I think it was a the Armed Forces Bowl. Correct. That, that game was being done remotely. And, you know, there were a lot of things that were going on in that stadium that those announcers, you could tell, did not see or understand. Now, they did the best they could, but, you know, events can happen. Things may be getting chippy, and if you're courtside, you know we're building it to a crescendo and something may explode. You can't do that if you're not there. But to your point about specific moments, the most recent one is probably the one that when I write the book and I'm in the middle of putting together one it's more of a what not to do and uh, what to do and what not to do book but there'll be some memoirs in there as well a whole chapter will be on March the 12th at the Big East tournament with Creighton playing St. John's and at halftime being told the season's over you've called the last basket there'll be no confetti when you go off the air and you've got to somehow put in perspective the first half that we witnessed, the incredible news that we just learned that they're not going to be playing, and in all likelihood, there won't be any more basketball. Now, the NCAA tournament had not been called off yet. That happened a few hours later. But to be in Madison Square Garden, empty, calling a game that's called at halftime, and then try to put in perspective where we are and what sports' place is in, in life at this stage with an international pandemic that we haven't seen in over 100 years, that was quite a task to try to do that. I was able to, I think, come out of it okay in large measure because I had done a game at the SEC tournament in 2008 in Atlanta, Georgia, when the, the old Georgia Dome was being hit by uh, an F1 tornado, which forced the stoppage of a game between Alabama and Mississippi State. 
there was a later a documentary made about it, Thirty for Thirty on on it called Miracle Three. Had a had a shot not been going through the the bucket in in regulation, probably twenty thousand people could have been on the streets of Atlanta when this tornado hit. Lives could have been lost. And then we we had to wait to see if the the game would finish, and it did. And then we had to wait to see if the next game would be played, and it wasn't. And walked out of that arena, and it looked like the demilitarized zone. And probably took two hours to get to our hotel afterwards, and then we moved the tournament to Georgia Tech that year. You may recall Georgia only won four SEC games that year, and they wound up winning the SEC tournament and stealing a bid. And they did it at Georgia Tech, of all places. That happened, and you mentioned the one at Oklahoma State before. You know, Spencer and I walked over three body bags Jeez. from our hotel to the stadium. What had happened was a woman that clearly was not of her of her right mind went through the barricades of the homecoming parade that morning and killed three people. And we had to open the show that day with an obituary the flag at half-mast and sort of telling that story and trying to put into some perspective what had happened. You know, CNN had been on and, and Fox News had been on all day with helicopters covering this tragedy, and yet we're going to play football. The decision was made, we're going to play. And you got a packed house at Boone Pickens Stadium. To try in a minute and a half to put all that into perspective and then have a kickoff and do a football game is a challenge. So all three of those are etched in my, my gray matter forever. But I think probably the toughest was probably that, that game you mentioned because mm-hmm. you're coming on the air, you want to have great energy enthusiasm, and, and the challenge was to strike a tone that was somber but not to the point where we were going to fade to black and not come back. The reality was we still had a football game to call, and we had 70,000 people in there that at some point will begin to cheer. And to get through that game with a – a tone that was both respectful and yet fair to the to the broadcast, to the sports broadcast of the, of that conference and those two teams, was challenging. And the same was true at the Big East tournament. When we were going on the air that day, the Big Ten, the ACC, and the SEC had all canceled their games about ten minutes before tip. We were the only game playing, and it was at Madison Square Garden. And I'm sure a lot of people around the country were wondering why. And so when we came on the air, my challenge then was to say, well, we welcome you here to Madison Square Garden, where for now, we play on in college basketball. And, and then, you know, then be fair to the kids who are making some great plays and just enjoy the game sure. while we had the game. You know, so those were all challenges. And I'll tell you, Grant, it's at those points where the years you've spent in the industry really help you. They really, really help you. So. The longer we do this, the better we get at it. And it's funny, many times people will introduce you by saying legendary or iconic. I'm glad you didn't do that today because (laughs) usually the people that say that, the third question, about the third question you get is, well, how much longer are you going to do this? (laughs) (laughs) You know, they're ready to push you. They're ready to push you out the door. I'm really happy uh, to be uh, the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame is, is inducting me this summer. We oh, couldn't this, great. this past summer because of, of COVID. And I'm actually going to be in the same class with Nick Saban, which is kind of a thrill. Wow. And I was nominated as a finalist for the NMS, uh, NSMA, which was really nice. 
But you know what? Dick Stockton and Jim Nance and the great Bill King are going in, and they're deserving, and I'll wait my turn. But the reality is when people start speaking of you in those <laughs> terms, right. the next, right. you know, about two questions later is, uh, you are getting ready to get out. <laughs> I, really well, believe, I really believe we do our best work. I mean this sincerely. I, I think, like coaches, get better with a, like a fine wine. You know, I think I think the best work that we can do is in our 60s. If we're of good health and we've we've managed to stay current and we have great passion for what we do, I, I think the best work we do is at this time in our lives. Well, you're doing great work. I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed reflecting with you. Uh, stay healthy, uh, keep up the great work, and hopefully we can do this again in the not-too-distant future. I really appreciate it, Tim. Well, well, no, and, and Grant, thank you. You've been a friend for a long period of time. I know you've been through a great deal, and I wish you nothing but the best moving forward. I greatly appreciate that, Tim. Thank you very much. It is now time for Crowd Question. If you want to ask me a question on my podcast, just go to crowdquestion.com. It takes less than a minute to sign up. Trevor starts us off today. Who was more dominant in their sport? MJ or Gretzky? It's not even close. Wayne Gretzky. And it really, it's not even close. Uh, Wayne Gretzky, to me, was the greatest player to this date, still 2021, forever. He's the greatest player in the history of team sport. But MJ and Gretzky, not even close. It's Wayne Gretzky by a freaking mile. By a mile. Ryan wants to know, are the Packers done with Rodgers? No, of course they're not done with Rodgers. Rodgers isn't going anywhere. Why should they send Rodgers somewhere? And um, I'd be shocked with a capital S if Aaron Rodgers isn't with the Green Bay Packers next year. Mark wants to know, are you a fan of how the Baseball Hall of Fame selects inductees? No, I am not. And I just did a rant on this, so you can check it out. It was my rant as of yesterday, all right, I did a rant on this because I think it is absolutely absurd how the Baseball Writers Association of America uh, is conducting business. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. All right, let's get to some more questions. Martin wants to know, what do you think caused tickets to games to become unaffordable to the average person? Well, first of all, I'm not sure how to define the average person because it's all relative. I personally disagree with that. I think there are a lot of affordable tickets to go to games, uh, but you're generally going to be sitting in the upper level. And I've always said this, you know, growing up as a kid, I used to go to games all the time. My dad used to take me and my brother to NFL games. We used to go to college games. We used to go to hockey games. We never had good seats. All right. And I never once as a kid ever thought, gee, how come I'm not closer to the field or the ice? Never, never entered my mind. I was just happy as all heck to be going to a game. I think there are a lot of people that are spoiled now, and for whatever reason, they don't want to sit upstairs. Now, I do think what is the case and what is an absolute joke and the absurdity is the price of concessions. That is unaffordable, and I, don't, I, I think that's unaffordable for most people. But to go, you can get tickets to a lot of games, baseball, basketball. You know, maybe you can't get a ticket, let's say, to go to the Lakers. That's cheap. All right, I'm using that as an example. But just about all teams have uh, affordable tickets for most games. Uh, You can get affordable tickets for just about any baseball game you want to go to. Uh, NFL can be a little bit more challenging, but depending on the market. So I don't agree with that. All right. I I don't think it's unaffordable to the quote unquote average person. Again, you're not going to be sitting close to the field or the court, but you're still going to be at the game. 
All right, let's get to some more questions. Shane wants to know what teams are capable of beating the Nets in a playoff series. Way too early. You know, we're only 20 games into the season. There are going to be several teams, though, that will be capable. It's too early. I mean, the Lakers would be one right off the top of my head. You know, I think Milwaukee, if they're healthy, I think maybe Philadelphia, if they're healthy, Miami, if they're healthy. You know, there, there are teams, but it's a little bit early uh, right now. Uh, to forecast that. Marcus wants to know, hey, Grant, have you paid any attention to Jimmer's career in China? Yeah, he's great over in China. I'm happy for him. I'm a big Jimmer fan. Obviously, just not good enough to play in the NBA, but uh, he is a he's a fan favorite over there in China. Travis wants to know, hey, Grant, do you know of any pros with great charitable foundations worth do- donating to? A lot of the athletes have foundations. You just have to do a little research and Google them. But yes, there are there are a lot of athletes uh, that have really, really good uh, foundations and charities. Uh, Chris wants to know what sort of impact do you envision Trevor Lawrence providing the Jags in his first season? Well, assuming they take him, and again, I think we can assume that, uh, it's going to take a little while. The Jags have a lot of areas uh, to improve. I don't think they're going to make the playoffs in his first year, but it's going to be fun to watch. You know, again, impact. You know, do you do you define impact as wins and losses? If you're going to define impact by wins and losses, then I think in that particular instance, uh, it would be minimal. Ken wants to know, are you going to watch the Australian Open in a couple of weeks? I'll watch a little of it. I won't watch a lot, but I'll watch a little of it, particularly uh, in the later rounds, uh, especially if the big names are playing. Uh, I will watch uh, a little of it. Uh Ian wants to know, why do we unfortunately see pro athletes committing domestic violence every year? To be honest with you, uh, Ian, it's no different than regular society. Uh, there are a very, very, very small number of pro athletes uh, committing domestic violence. Uh, I think it's right in line with the numbers of, again, society in general. I don't think it's outlandish. Uh, I think the only reason why you're asking that is because when your neighbor or somebody that's a private person commits to domestic violence, you never hear about it. But when a pro athlete uh, oversteps the line or commits, uh, you know, uh, uh, domestic violence, which is a hideous act, you hear about it because it's publicized all over the world and, you know, on Twitter and on the news. And so, you know, it's it's a little bit uh, different. Neil wants to know, do you think the COVID-sniffing dogs in Miami are ridiculous? I don't think it's ridiculous if it enables a business to make more money. So if these dogs really do, uh, you know, if they're able to do this and you're able to get fans into games, which means a business makes more money, then I don't think it's ridiculous at all. Hey, we're, we're in uncharted territory here. You know, businesses are trying to figure out a way to stay afloat. And if that's something that you have to do, then do it. It's time for Rant. Today's rant is brought to you by New Works Plumbing, locally owned in Sacramento for 20 years. Leak detection, water line repair, bathroom plumbing. New Works Plumbing is a full-service plumbing solution. No matter how small or how large your plumbing problem, they've got a fix for you. Folks, they're Expert technicians are available 24-7 for all of your plumbing needs. Just go to newworksplumbing.com, N-E-W-W-R-X plumbing.com. So it's official. 
Deshaun Watson has asked the Houston Texans to trade him. Normally, I am not on the side of players that ask to be traded when things are not going well. However, in this particular case, I really cannot blame Deshaun Watson. Let me give you the take of somebody who I have an immense respect for, somebody that was on this podcast back in the fall who works in Houston on talk radio, the former NFL quarterback, Sean Salisbury. He put out on Twitter yesterday, he says, can you fathom a franchise having a player as good as Deshaun Watson, yet screwing it up so badly that they now may have to trade him only to go out in search of another quarterback as spectacular as Watson? Pure insanity. Teams search their whole existence trying to find a quarterback this good. I'm with Sean on that 100%. Deshaun Watson is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. And the Texans have absolutely screwed this up. They got no one to blame but themselves. Look in the freaking mirror here. Now, with that said, it doesn't mean they have to trade Watson And if they don't get what they need in return, I would not trade Deshaun Watson. But boy, oh boy, what a mess ownership and management has been in that franchise. Absolutely horrible. I mean, last year you give up, you know, DeAndre Hopkins to Arizona. I mean, the guy was unbelievable. And I can go on and on and on. You know what? The Texans get what they deserve here. They have a pissed off quarterback who wants out of town. And I can't say I blame him. And again, I normally do not side with the players when they want to be traded. But in this particular instance, I cannot blame Deshaun Watson one single bit. And if you're a fan of the Texans, you got to be asking yourself, what the hell is wrong with ownership and management? Awful. Absolutely awful. And Sean Salisbury is 100% correct. That's my rant for today. Hey, I appreciate, as always, you checking out the podcast. My thanks to uh, Tim Brando. If you like what you're seeing or hearing, I should say, do me a favor. Take a moment and leave a comment. It would be greatly appreciated. And don't forget about my video rants over on YouTube, the same channel if you don't like that with Grant Napier. Folks, again, thank you so much. Make it a great weekend. And as always, always appreciate you finding us right here. If you don't like that with Grant Napier.